Welcome to the Founders Keepers podcast. Interviews exploring stories behind the founders of change-making businesses in social impact, healthcare, and health tech industries. What makes those founders tick? I'm your host, Dr. Grace Hatton, and this week I'm joined by both Dr. Smriti Zanneveld and Dr. Jacques Zanneveld, the founders of Lazarus 3D. Lazarus 3D is a seed stage US-based organization that produces three-dimensional printed synthetic human tissue models for surgical training. They are the proprietors of the world's first FDA-cleared technology that allows physicians to rehearse their case on a personalized copy of the patient before the real operation, claiming to improve surgical confidence, patient safety, and patient outcomes. Both Smriti and Jacques hold PhDs in medical and human genetics from Baylor College of Medicine, with Smriti serving as Lazarus's president and Jacques as CEO, respectively. In this episode, we talk about literally building a business from your kitchen table, personalizing surgical care, and why job titles don't really matter. Let's get started. Smriti, Jacques, thank you both so much for joining me on this episode today. As a 3D printing enthusiast myself, I'm very excited to learn more about your backgrounds and the work that you've done together and independently that has essentially led you to where you are now with Lazarus 3D. And so I'd love for you to share your journey so far in your own words. Well, thank you, Grace, for having us. My name is Dr. Smriti Zanneveld. I'm a scientist and I'm also the founder and president of Lazarus 3D. Um, Our goal is to help doctors operate with confidence by using technology and tools um, that allow them to have foresight into, uh, you know, every case that is uh, up and coming and they are able to better prepare uh, by planning better and providing the best care and outcomes for their patients. And I'm Dr. Jacques Zonneveld, uh, founder and CEO. Uh, Smriti and I started this company together in our kitchen when we were going to Baylor College of Medicine. And we really noticed that there was uh, a large gap between learning about surgeries, you know, in a book and watching people perform them, the actual activity of performing a surgery. And those hands-on skills and expertise are so critical for patient care. Uh, Data shows us that the largest driver of outcomes uh, for many surgeries is actually patient, uh, excuse me, physician skill and expertise. So the better prepared your surgeon is, the more likely it is that you're going to have a good outcome in your surgery. Digging deeper into the idea behind Lazarus 3D, was there any particular prompt for it? I think it was a uh, combination of things. I think for me, it was personal experience. Um, where I, I think, and this is a story that most people will share in uh, some walk of life, right? So either, um, uh, you know, someone has had a loved one. So in my case, it was uh, a family member that passed away uh, after having uh, been diagnosed for breast cancer and gone through a surgery for it. And then basically being told that they are cancer free and like, you know, they're getting monitored and screen routinely. However, nonetheless, uh, they end up, you know, one day finding out that their uh, cancer cells had metastasized and had spread everywhere to the point where it was terminal and uh, no treatment would have uh, led to survival of this family member. And so we asked the surgeons and, and the doctors, you know, like, why did this happen? And it turns out that Uh, Of course, they had done their best, but they had left something behind. And that basically went undetected and then it spread everywhere. So this is not unheard of. And uh, when personally I was a graduate student, uh, 
you know, starting out with my PhD at Baylor College of Medicine, uh, early in my career, in my first year, I had spoken with the residency uh, training director at the SIM facility. And I had the opportunity to go in and observe how residents learn, how medical students learn and their journey. Um, and I learned that it was a little bit scary um, to have had to uh, basically, you know, operate on a banana. You know, they're they're doing sutures on a banana, which makes sense if you're just learning, you know, basic skills. But then to have no intermediary going from operating on a bell pepper or a pumpkin to do complex robotic procedures um, and then maybe cadavers. But that's really to learn gross anatomy. Uh, and then going from this immediately sort of like escalating to, OK, here is my patient and I'm in the OR and this person's life is in my hands. It's it's traumatizing. I think that is a lot of responsibility. And unfortunately, unlike pilots, there had been no surrogate where a pilot gets to train on a um, on a simulator. And that's easy because the planes are standardized for patients. Every patient is different. So there is no standardized patient. And for doctors, that poses a unique challenge. So if they're not able to obtain those, you know, life altering, life saving skills outside of the OR, I think it is unfortunate that the patient now has to bear that risk. And as a patient myself, I would be very uncomfortable, you know, uh, being in that position. And I think that no one is doing this um, because they want to. I think that this is just how it's been. So that's that was my sort of eye-opening moment where I realized that this is the reality that we live in in healthcare. And lo and behold, unsurprisingly, there are risks that are presented to the patient that lead to complications, that lead to mortalities and morbidities uh, post-surgery uh, that are unfortunate, but are preventable. And so that's that, that, that was kind of like my foundation and led me to um, thinking about the problem and then basically uh, team effort to uh, coming up with a solution that might be, uh, you know, a, a, a way to reduce risk and improve outcomes in healthcare. So we thought, you know, there were some training models that other people had produced, but humans are really variable. And when you're building a training model using sort of product, typical production techniques, you're very limited in what you can do because the setup cost for those is so expensive. So we thought, what if we could use 3D printing technologies not to build a specific patient, but to build your patient for your upcoming case? Because just practicing one piece of music forever and then getting a new complex piece of music, you're still going to make mistakes, right? It's still a novel experience. There are novel things you have to consider and improve on. So it would be much better preparation if you could prepare specifically for that one patient's upcoming case. So we developed a new 3D printing technology. After thinking about this problem, we uh, worked specifically to invent a technology that would let us build these lifelike replicas of specific patients. And this has other advantages too. It's really good for physicians, not only for physicians in training where they're overcoming that learning curve, but also anytime you have a really complex case that's, that's pushing the boundaries of what a surgeon is comfortable with. Um, but it's also really good from a business perspective. So if we look 
at um, outcomes. We know they're largely driven by surgeon skill and expertise, but it's very hard to uh, fund training programs because they aren't directly related to patient care. However, by building a model of an individual patient, those models can now be considered diagnostic medical devices intended for use in the care of that specific patient. And that opens up uh, a new way to fund this type of endeavor, which is through insurance reimbursement. And insurance companies you know, may be happy to cover this because limiting liability is the entire game for an insurance company. At the same time, it's beneficial for doctors and hospitals because they're able to limit uh, uh, the number of unfortunate events and improve outcomes for their patients. So it's really a win-win-win across the medical spectrum. And so that's what we set out to build. Yeah, I think we didn't uh, mention what the platform was. So uh, I just want to, I just want to share that. So it's called Presure, uh, Pre-Operative Surgical Rehearsal uh, Technology that is lifelike, life-sized, uh, built directly, obviously, from the patient's MRI and CT. Uh, but I think that the tactile aspect of it uh, brings a new level of realism for the surgeons where there are teams of physicians, right? Typically, if it's a multi-organ uh, procedure or complex uh, anatomy, different people will be involved. So it gives them an opportunity to touch and hold the anatomy, to look at and to comprehend the structural details of the pathology and how it how it compares or relates to the surrounding healthy structures. And I think that is an ability that even in the real surgery, you don't have, right? You're not going to be able to visualize the internal anatomy. Um, you know, you're not looking at all of the components of it. There's so much fat, fascia and, you know, surrounding uh, tissue, blood and all of this stuff it's obstructed. But now you're able to sort of look at the skeletonized version of it. And not only that, these models cut and bleed like real tissue. So you're able to actually operate on it. And that gives the surgeons a unique perspective and ability that I think is unparalleled. I think it's an incredibly interesting concept. And you may well have heard the phrase, see one, do one, teach one, which is a concept very much ubiquitous in physician and surgical training here in the UK, whether that relates to taking a blood sample for a lab test or carrying out a much more complex procedure, such as a cesarean section, for instance. Would you say that Lazarus 3D is targeted at surgeons with pre-existing experience carrying out these complex procedures already established in hospitals or more so at the sort of junior or student level with the intent of perhaps carrying on this learning throughout their subsequent surgical training? It's actually for both. So see one, do one, teach one is also a phrase. I mean, it's a global phrase in medicine. And that's not necessarily because after you've seen one, you are ready to do one. And after you've done one, you're ready to teach one. That, in fact, is not the case. And we know that statistically. The reason that that phrase is so common is because there has been no other way to proceed in medicine. So we want to be really clear. Every physician, you know, every person is absolutely doing their best. Um, but there's only so much you can do when the only way that you can get a realistic experience is on a patient because we have to train the next generation of doctors. So we think that there's an opportunity to prevent uh, thousands of complications by having physicians practice on copies of patients ahead of time. But there are also many cases, even for experienced surgeons, where they are challenging. 
On average, the uh, really leading surgeons that we speak to at top-of-the-line institutes several times a month encounter a case where they say, man, you know, they're debating it with their colleagues, they're in a room, they're going over the scans, they're saying, well, what if we do this? What if we do that? Imagining all the scenarios and really trying to come up with the best treatment plan for that patient because of the inherent complexities in that patient's case. What Lazarus can do is provide another tool for those discussions where, hey, if like there's several options we're considering, let's try each one of them. Let's see how it actually feels when we're doing that and use that to finalize our decision and coordinate care between caregivers. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I do want to say that early on, uh, we started out with uh, working, uh, you know, with a surgeon in urology who had years of experience. Um, and he kind of really solidified this, um, uh, I guess, or validated the benefit of pre-sure early on. And as a physician who is dealing with these very complex cases, he was able to tackle them in ways that really is like entering this unknown and you really don't know what is going to happen. And to be able to, um, and the way I like to phrase it is have foresight on those cases and being able to even decide like, is this a surgery that I should perform or or is if there is a path even that we should consider being able to exercise that path or that opportunity is really cool. Later, I guess, when this surgeon uh, was able to share that technology and the platform with the residents and, you know, his fellows, they got really excited. And I think that there is a continuous path to learning. Um, early on, you're starting out, you're like, just fascinated with the anatomy and the pathology and the technologies. There are so many different ways to uh, even, you know, uh, operate. So there are robotic approaches, there are laparoscopic approaches, open surgical approaches. So to know, you know, there are these different options and then how to overcome the learning curve uh, when, when there's a new technology or innovation that may provide better uh, you know, faster recovery or less blood loss, less scarring, less infection, et cetera. Um, so I think that at that point, we were, we were starting to talk to a lot of medical students and residents. And it seems that it was very obvious that residents uh, would love this. And so we started working with a lot of residency programs, as well as a lot of medical device companies that train residents and have these um, mastery courses and workshops designed specifically for the young surgeons. Um, and, and there was a, a great value that we brought to them and it was a good learning for us. So of course, now we are continuing the path where we want to support education and, uh, and those early stages of uh, residents, fellows and young surgeons, and then also continue to focus on those very complex cases, uh, which is where we started. It seems to me to perhaps be a relatively niche innovative area you're working in with these models. So I wonder if you can tell me about some of the investors you partner with. How do you establish and build a relationship with them and demonstrate that they can effectively trust you with their money? I'd actually push back a little bit on that question in that you say it's a niche area. Um, many medical devices are intended for use for a very specific type of operation, right? Here's a particular orthopedic screw 
used in one type of spine operations. This idea of being able to rehearse and better prepare for your upcoming case actually has quite broad applicability. Um, our initial FDA clearance was on all genitourinary conditions. So all conditions of the cervix, of the prostate, of the bladder, of the kidneys. And we're currently uh, seeking clearance for an additional eight broad classifications. So everything from brain surgeries to heart surgeries to facial surgeries, um, really the entire field could potentially benefit from this type of technology. And that means it has a very large market potential. Yeah, but going back to the question about the investors, I think that you know this for early stage founders uh, and for you know people like us that really started this venture while we were still students uh, in our graduate studies. Um, it was not easy, and so our customers became our investors in the early days, and I think that's the best kind of investment that you can have because it comes with you know the shared mission, which is that I want you to succeed. And of course, we want us to succeed too. So uh, so I think that really aligned with um, that early you know, stage of like, let's make this happen together. And they were so intrigued by the opportunity to have a alternative to you know, these cadavers that don't even have the anatomy or the pathology, more importantly, of a live patient that is otherwise healthy but then has this like aneurysm or this tumor in their liver or their kidney. Um, and so they were intrigued by that. And the fact that we were able to support them in something that they really wanted um, made them appreciate us. And we appreciated them, of course, because this was like really the discovery of a product market fit. And it was in real time. And this was the beginning. So it was really nice to not have to go out and you know, seek investors. Uh, of course, the earliest investors were, you know, the so-called friends and family. Um, not that we come from, you know, a ton of money, but we'd invested our own money, our savings from our student stipend into this company. And, um, you know, I think even in, in those early days, uh, when people would ask us like, oh, you know, uh, what are you raising, et cetera, where we were in, in a big city, I would say Houston, the infrastructure there was uh, catered to support um, founders that had safer um, ventures, I would say, you know, like in, uh, in software or in oil and gas and not so much in healthcare, unfortunately. So when we would talk to these uh, investors, they're always like, okay, what's, what is your timeline? What is uh, what is like the ROI? How how quickly can we expect that? And we're like, no, this is a venture that is a long term commitment, and it's a long term investment opportunity. It's not your like, oh, let's flip this in like two to three years. This is not a uh, a home that you can just renovate and like sell it off. This is literally a opportunity that will transform the entire industry. Um, and so that was really a challenge for us. And in those early days to get like a 10K check or a 50K check was like such a big deal. Um, but we really wanted to wait till we had proven it to ourselves that this is worth fighting for. Like this is going to really make a difference. And for, for us, that meant achieving these milestones, you know, getting the IP protected, getting the regulatory um, 
hurdles out of the way, getting that FDA clearance, getting the adoption and saving or at least contributing to lives that were saved and, and uh, you know, things of that variety. So uh, we waited. And then last year, uh, we actually raised uh, a round. And so um, that was $9 million. And after converting our prior investments, it was about $10.4 million. And so that was really rewarding um, because that was validation from, uh, you know, the VC community that, you know, this is something that they're, uh, that they're interested in supporting. And uh, the folks that actually were the leader or, you know, the VC that led the round um, had known us for a long time and they knew what the company's mission was and where we were going with this. And most importantly, our success and scrappiness along the way. So I really want to highlight a couple points from what Sriti said. Our first ever investor was a postdoctoral student at the same university where we were still studying at the time. And he, on his postdoc salary, invested $15,000 into Lazarus. That was enough for um, us to get a small space and to start making things and selling things. So starting out right with pretty much just an idea, not a lot else. Um, one time we went down to the Starbucks in the medical center with this brain we 3D printed. And I would say, wow, Sriti, that's an amazing brain you have, kind of loudly in the Starbucks. Like, why don't you tell me about it? And, she'd start- and then like a bunch of like surgeons, all of a sudden you could see them crowding uh, over us. And they're like, wait, did you just say brain? And then because <laughs> if you like, hear that, yeah. you're going to go check it <laughs> out, right? If you're medically inclined. So we did that and we bootstrapped for a really long time. So I think some people think very early on, like, where's the investment? Because I've got an idea, step one. Step two, let me go raise millions of dollars to make it happen. That's usually, in my experience, not how it works. And that's certainly not the path we took. Um, We actually started selling training models, which was unregulated. We developed the technology with very minimal, uh, uh, actually with zero funding. The the technology was working before we got that $15,000. Then we were selling stuff out of our kitchen, out of a very small facility space after that. Uh, very slowly adding on people, uh, hiring, getting patents. We self-completed the studies required for the FDA, submitted for FDA clearance, and received FDA clearance. And we're on the market with sales of a medical device, bootstrap developed, before we got our first large investment round. So at that point, you really de-risked things for investors because we proved out so many of those key risks for this technology. I think I just want to say that it takes grit to be scrappy. Um, And especially in healthcare, you don't always have that option. Uh, We kind of created the option uh, from the get-go because we knew that we would have had to support this and fund this um, through and through. Um, And so, yeah, it was really, I think, a great opportunity for us. Uh, being in the space that is traditionally, you know, like you need millions of dollars to back it. And we were able to get by with having those uh, funds to our customers who are still our customers. So we greatly appreciate them. Well, aside from what you've mentioned in terms of the scrappy things you've done to date in building Lazarus 3D, have there been any of the particular standout challenges that you've faced so far as business founders? One of the most exciting things about being a founder is that every day, 
brings, I feel like, a new challenge and a new thing to learn. Um, so early on, a lot of it was around research and development and how we can actually build these things and what is the clinical need, what is the market. Um, as you know, you get more developed, those questions you know start to turn into questions about managing teams and raising money. And it's just been such an exciting journey as someone who enjoys tackling new problems. Yeah, I would say that for me, um, early on, I obviously didn't come from, you know, a business background. And so although my uh, my family, you know, exposed me to that background, they have, uh, we have, we have a family business, but being somebody that is, you know, young and really, you know, new to this, to the space and to go out and have to like to pitch to investors, I think it was kind of disappointing to, to see that there wasn't a whole lot of support for, uh, you know, encouraging uh, founders, like founders supporting other founders or the community supporting founders um, that were just starting out. And being a female founder, nonetheless, made life, you know, not so great, I would say. Um, there were a lot of investors. And so we're a team of two. And a lot of investors would specifically uh, follow up or reach out to Jacques versus me. And at that time, you know, we divide and conquer strategy. So he was really focused on the development and I was focused on, you know, customers and, um, you know, making sure that their experiences were positive and then also like tackling fundraising. And so they would deliberately reach out to Jacques even after him, like letting them know that you really need to be speaking with Smriti about this. And they kept doing that. And it was really like unfortunate, I would say. It was just a sad, sad experience for me. And at that point, we just decided that we're not going to fundraise because that environment was just not optimal for, I would say, a company like ours. And, and then the community is so focused on, you know, misogyny and uh, just that gender bias that is, you know, real. And we're like, we're not going to deal with these people. And we just kind of like decided that we're not going to fundraise. And <laughs> I think that was a good decision on many fronts. Until we found the right person right? Correct. or the right yeah. set of um, investors. Yeah. I think at that point, we decided that the investors that we want uh, to join this team will have to have a different mindset than what we had been exposed to early on. You both, of course, as mentioned, have different roles in the company. Can you share what a typical workday looks like for you both if such a typical day exists? Oh, it's a very dynamic uh, environment, uh, just startup culture in general. Um, so we've never cared for titles. Um, and so although Jacques is the CEO officially and I am, you know, the COO or the um, uh, president of the company, I think that those are just made up titles. Um, we both take responsibility for areas that we are passionate about uh, or are more knowledgeable or skilled in. Um, and so those areas every day could range from, you know, there is this difficult case that's coming in, um, you know, who is taking charge, who's taking lead on this case versus, um, oh, you know, we need to um, engage with our investors. We need to create a, uh, a you know, a report for the for the investors, um, or whether it is, 
engagement with the team or whether it is hiring, whether it is taxes. Uh, I think it's just very dynamic. <laughs> and I think it's changing really quickly. So it used to be much more when a case came in, Smriti and I would be handling every step of the design, customer interaction, delivery, following up with customer, being there during the surgeries. And that's changing really rapidly following our investment round. So now the typical day is more like, well, here are the orders coming in. Let's coordinate with you know Christine to make sure that the production team is working and you know other uh, uh, incredible engineers on our team for all of the follow-up steps. Um, so that's really you know an interesting transition as you you know move beyond doing things yourself and move towards uh, supporting you know the team, trying to hire the right people, find the right people, build the company culture, and provide enough oversight to help. But not so much that you're, you know, limiting growth or that you're you're doing it yourself, right? It's really about empowering and nurturing and growing people um, uh, to get them to the point where they can achieve these incredible things. Yeah, I would agree with him. So early on, it was like, okay, it's you know us, and we are just going to have to figure it out, you know, uh, between the two of us. And now it's more like delegation. So it's like, well, who is on on our team the best person to tackle this? And instead of, you know, just being bogged down with uh, an infinite to-do list that will never cease to exist, uh, we now are able to delegate. And I think that's really cool. And we delegate to each other, too. We're like, you know, you, you take care of this thing. Like, <laughs> go figure it out. Uh, and, and it's really, it's transformative from where we started. But, and, and that also sounds like um, something that's easy. And I, I think maybe I went into it thinking that uh, having having you know additional team members would help solve a lot of problems and it does but it's also a lot of work um uh, uh managing that finding the right people um uh figuring out how much people are ready to take on so that's been a very exciting learning experience and what can we expect in the next 12 to 24 months from you are you perhaps looking towards international expansion is it scaling the team is it building more products you actually nailed it Yes, so all three of those things. Uh, we are hiring actively. And so uh, right now we're growing our sales force. Um, that's kind of been the focus. Uh, and then also onboarding with uh, good people that understand the mission and vision of Lazarus 3D that will help us with adoption, uh, marketing, you know, uh, social media engagements, et cetera. Um, and then also focusing on growing our production capabilities. So part of that is scouting new space and looking at, you know, uh, what, what, what do we need to do to support things three years down the line, four years down the line, not the today, not the tomorrow. Um, and so it's really interesting to, to think far out like that, um, been there, done that, and uh, to learn from that and then like sort of look at the next phase. Um, then international expansion, that's another area. So uh, we were recently um, at a really cool uh, conference. It's the second largest healthcare conference in the world called Arab Health. And Jacques actually presented at Innovate, uh, which was a challenge uh, for founders in healthcare to um, share, you know, um, uh, I guess technologies really that are aligned with the uh, sustainability goals. So there are 18 or 17 goals. Um, and so one of them is focused on health and wellness. 
so we won that challenge. That was really fun. Uh, but more importantly, you know, uh, I think the UAE is obviously a really strong ally uh, to have and, uh, and then to bring this technology to patients uh, there is going to be really uh, exciting for us. Uh, we were not focusing on international expansion so early on. However, the opportunities that presented themselves have led us to sort of reconsider that. And um, I think that it is something that we might end up moving forward with. Yeah, specifically for founders in the healthcare space, um, UAE is interesting in that there's not that much additional work once you're cleared through the FDA. They're a small enough uh, country that they basically take the tactic of, if it's good enough for the US, you know, you, you have to file some registrations and do a few things. But you can pretty much market and sell it as a medical device very quickly in the UAE. So that's quite attractive. Um, I, I just want to say that I think there is a lot of money in the UAE. Um, and I think that they want, they have the means to elevate the quality of care um, there. Um, but I think traditionally the bottleneck had been, you know, uh, this uh, technology adoption where there is a, a big ask of health systems or even hospitals or clinics to, you know, obtain software licenses and then purchase these 3D printers, set up this facility and uh, then train the people to run it. And then at the end of it, when you are making products uh, for patient care, you know, you have to make sure that you're doing it correctly and that it's going to have a positive impact and, and not cause, you know, any kind of negative effects. So, um, so that had been a significant barrier. And then to see that, you know, there are companies like ours that are able to provide turnkey solutions eliminates that entire problem. And, and it's a significant cost burden, you know, uh, to overcome. Um, so we are able to sort of serve that industry in, in that capacity that probably, you know, was wanting it, but couldn't implement it. And, uh, and then also the fact that the technology is not where it was previously, where it was hard plastic models, we're now able to provide soft tissue models that cut and bleed like real tissue, that elevates their game too. And I think with the UAE, they really want things that are truly the cutting edge. So it was really, uh, I think, an alignment that we found. And what are you most optimistic or excited about regarding the future of Lazarus 3D? I think that it's the impact. I think that's the key. Um, our whole team is, uh, I think there's like a lot of stress. There is a lot of uh, challenge. There is always something, you know, crazy going on here that, you know, needs to be tackled. But it's the impact that we know uh, is, you know, the downstream effect. Uh, patient lives uh, is, is what I mean by that, um, that we're able to touch. And for us, Really, we see the future where any patient in any part of this world is able to leverage Lazarus 3D and, and have their surgeons, you know, uh, be able to rehearse and be able to create a game plan and tackle it too uh, ahead of the curve so that they're getting good quality care. Um, and I think that for now, you know, of course, we're focused on the U.S. market and maybe some small expansion opportunities. Uh, internationally, in the future, we want to bring this to uh, communities that are underserved, 
areas that are remote and isolated, like island communities, uh, as well as um, to places that don't have good quality healthcare to begin with. Like, you know, you may have like a surgeon or two, they're not operating in those high volumes. Uh, and then they don't get that exposure, even through that hands-on experience, we're able to probably make an impact on uh, on those uh, communities and, and provide safety, bring safety into their OR. What do you think personally has been the biggest contributor to your respective successes? A lot of hard work, honestly. Um, we were very scrappy. We were very close to the edge of uh, financial ruin for very many years. Uh, we put everything we had into this business and there were a lot of times where, you know, it could have gone either way. And I think that's a story that you hear um, across uh, investors. So I think a huge amount of luck, a huge amount of good faith from people that believed in us when rightly they didn't, you know, have that much evidence to make that uh, decision. And a lot of um, gutsy moves and hard work on the part of the founders. I would say that for me, it has just been, um, you know, this ability to take a no and make that, uh, you know, something that is in, like it's just like okay, I have to prove them wrong now, right? Um, so if somebody said, no, this is not going to be a viable path or, you know, uh, I, I just it, it just presents to me as a challenge. And other people may look at that and say that, you know, um, it, it was discouraging for them. I think it is encouraging to me. So I think that's a difference that it's, it's a, a way of thinking. Would you do anything differently if you would start again? Well, of course. I mean, <laughs> if I started with the knowledge, you know, that I have right now, there's so many things that would have gone so much faster. We'd immediately have the technology working so much better. We could, you know, nail right down on, on the correct tests to do, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but that's not the way life works, right? Uh, entrepreneurism is so much about exploring questions. And I think you really have to embrace the fact that you're going to do some things wrong. You're going to make some bad calls. You're going to try some things that won't work. And rather than looking at it as a negative, um, you should look at that as, well, I learned for sure that this thing doesn't work. And that's new information we've gained, right? Which is a helpful step forward. I agree. I think that, um, of course, if we were to do it over again, we would have overcome some hurdles much faster knowing what we know now. And then I would say that probably is true across all aspects of our learnings, uh, whether it was starting out with nothing, whether it was, you know, the, the technology development process, whether it was uh, regulatory fundraise, uh, so many hiring, uh, people management, uh, all of these things, firing too. Uh, it has been, it has, it is a lot of learning and there is no way to experience this from like book knowledge. You can't take a crash course on entrepreneurship. I don't think that you would learn much from such uh, uh, things, you know, but in real life, um, yeah, I would say that if we were to start a new venture in the future, we, we would be able to significantly accelerate uh, the process because, and do it more efficiently because of our experiences. 
And lastly, is there any other advice aside from the wealth of advice that you've already shared here that you would give to would-be business founders or budding entrepreneurs? Huh. I would say that everyone is going to, I think it's it's human nature to say, uh, uh, you know, that this is uh, a bad idea or that, you know, uh, it won't work. But I think every time a person like in life or in uh, entrepreneurship was to be posed um, that question or that response, you should just use that as a positive and use it as a challenge. Um, and I think not be insulted by it, not be you know upset by it, and just really use it as your secret weapon. And um, I think then you will find uh, joy in tackling whatever your challenge is, and it'll just be more power to you. And the biggest uh, recommendation I would have for anyone who's interested in entrepreneurship is go start a company and do something. The biggest issue is that people have great ideas, but they put impossible barriers in their own way. They either say, oh, I'm, I'm just not going to do it, or they say, um, I could only do this if I had X amount of money, um, try and raise it, fail, and then quit, right? What you really need to do is find anything that you can do where you can sell a valuable good or service to someone and start doing it right away. And I don't, I wouldn't be overly fussed about what that is because in the process of perhaps succeeding, perhaps failing in that, you'll learn a lot about what people might actually need and what will actually really address their benefits. And we see this all the time. It's the concept of pivoting. So just go and sell something. Um, for us, this may have been, you know, a uh, uh, one of our first prototypes of a brain, you know, in a Starbucks. But from doing that, we could learn, well, maybe this doesn't have clinical value, but the doctor we talked to said this other thing does. Let's try that. Maybe that works. Maybe it doesn't. Um, but if it doesn't, that person may have other ideas or their friends or their colleagues. So these things build on themselves, but you can't start that ramping period until you start somewhere. Mm -hmm. So even if it's a lemonade stand, you know, start selling something, start talking to customers and really dive into the problems you want to solve. Yeah, I think another thing that's really important is early on, founders are, you know, like forced to do everything themselves. But as you grow, you need to just like accept it and you cannot do everything. And you are not the best person even at doing everything. And so you just need to go find those people that are better at those specific areas. And, and I think it comes, step one is acceptance of it, that I am not the best at everything that this business needs now to, to uh, thrive. And so you've entered survival, you have made it through that mode. Now you need to uh, go past survive and thrive. And so when you are entering that second phase, you need to go find those people. And it's really difficult to find the best people. It's not, you know, their degrees or, you know, like their Harvard MBA that's going to really, I mean, that helps, but like really they have to be aligned with you and be able to work with you and elevate you and support you and, and feel empowered in all of it. Right. So it's so critical to find the best people and the definition of what, who is best for you and who is best for me. It's like, very, very different uh, depending on what your needs are, but I think that's really important. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Founders Keepers. 
And if you have, please consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving a review on whatever listening platform you are using. Be sure to tune in next time for another founder's story. Thank you.